I know different songs for it. Okay, I'm gonna go back to something that we spoke about in, at Voracious, which we never, I never followed up on. So I was like, oh, what about, right? And you also, no, you just uh, reminded me. Part of education is that you need to know all the names of the Torah portions. And we talked about it. Remember we spoke about it by, yeah, yeah, yeah. by Voracious and we kind of sort of like, Voracious, all of them or just Voracious? No, no. Okay, so. Whatever. Okay, so I'm putting it out there now that we owe we 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 owe a, a recitation of the parishes of Voracious, and now we're starting Shemais, and so I'm putting the charge or the challenge for anybody who will learn the names of the Torah portions, which we spoke about for Voracious, but we didn't do. Anybody who learns the names of all the Torah portions of Voracious and Shemos, because now we have two books under our wing, or we need to have, uh, we'll get something yummy. Is it, is it the same thing? I know the Voracious. Pick a tune, pick a tune. I think you missed one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's gracious. Make another one, or use the same. You could use the same tune. Meaning, there are some tunes that exist. There are other tunes that really resonate with me. And and part of part of knowledge is being able to. The first step, I think, is being able to at least rattle off the names of the Torah portions. The next question, which we're not going to get into this time is a little bit about what each one is talking about, but that's a harder conversation. Okay, so here we are. Ladies, we are opening a new book. Yay! Okay, we're starting the book of Shamos. Yeah, right? It's like, woo, we're there, okay? Uh, so this is kind of what I want to do for, for Shamos. Okay. In, we, we've, spoke about, we've spoken about this before, that in the Talmud and different or, or original Jewish sources, um, the names of the the names of the books are not as we know them. They are not called Shemos and Vayikra and Voracious, but the names of the books have other names. And the book of Shemos is called, and did we, did we have this conversation once before? It's called the Sefer HaGeula, the book of redemption. Okay. Now, if you look at the whole Chomish Shemos, you will find a very interesting thing. That it doesn't stop when the people get out of Egypt. Right. If the point is redemption, we should stop in Bishalach when they cross the sea. Yay, we're out of here, right? So, but that's not what actually happens. If you look through Chumash Shemos, somebody check towards the end of Chumash Shemos and tell me where does our book end? What's what's basically the end of of Shemos? What's happening? No, not the last last word, but go like. What's going a little before that? What's happening? What are they doing before that? Uh, nope. The tabernacle. Thank you. The cloud is the end, end, end. But the, the last four parshiyos are talking about the building of the tabernacle. So that means that when we talk about redemption, it's not just the matter of where I am not. Getting at a bad spot is the first thing. But where I end up is the more important question. And so the book of redemption does not end when they cry and say, yay, the Egyptians created a real personal relationship with Hashem. That's when we say safe our That's when we say that's redemption. The tabernacle is the Mishkan, correct. Okay, so that's- so when they create a relationship with Hashem? Yes, that's real redemption. That's real redemption. Just to say we're in a terrible place, we're slaves, it's horrible, it's really bad, and now we're not there anymore. Like that's very important. We're not we're not knocking that, but is that the whole thing? And anybody who's ever worked with people with addictions, we know it's not just enough to not as important, as important as it is to not do whatever our addiction is. The other question is, what am I? What am I replacing it with? What am I replacing it with something good to gazum so that I I I've moved? I haven't only moved out of a bad place, but I've also moved into a good place, and that's kind of very very important overall. What I would like to do over the the couple of parshas that we're going to be coming into next is to look at it very little in its back end, right? I Meaning, I want to talk about the stories, whatever, but I think it's so 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 important to use these parshas. For redemption. And we talk about redemption. We don't only talk about, you know, we talk about 
you know, that happened then when they left Egypt, that was important. And the, the final redemption is also very important, but us, me right here in the middle, where I am, where I'm stuck, where I need to move to, all of those places are going to be our personal redemption right now. And all of our little redemptions together are going to make a big bonfire. And that's going to be something really amazing and beautiful. So I want to try to highlight like our movement towards redemption uh, through these parshas. Question? No. Okay. Another thing. This is a personal observation. And it's uh, loosely based on stuff that I've learned, but like I can't give you a, an exact source for it. But it's interesting that right now in this nasty weather outside, we are dealing with the Parshias that deal with redemption. Now we know that all of this story is the Pesach story. This is the Passover story of getting out of Egypt and da 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 right? But, but the, the holiday of Pesach, which is the, the, the quintessential energy that is available, Pesach, of redemption, um, is kind of bolstered by learning about the redemption now, in the winter months, okay? First of all, as an aside, for many of us who are, actually make Pesach in our house, we get to the Seder and we haven't actually thought about Pesach a lot. It's, it's a challenge. I'm just, I'm just being very realistic. I hope you don't have this challenge. I hope you're better organized than I am, but it's a challenge for me. So I'm gonna assume it's everybody's challenge. That when you're so busy dealing with the details of a holiday, you forget to step out and say, what does it mean? And how does it speak to me? And what do I learn from it? But what happens is when you sit at the Seder and you read the story and you go over the conversation, you're like, oh, we just learned this. This is all fresh in our mind because these are the Torah portions in the weeks and the months leading up to Pesach, which we're not talking about Pesach, but I just, I'm saying that. The other thing that I think is very important is that if redemption is only available to us in the spring, when Pesach happens, then what happens when we're not in a place of warmth and sun and inspiration? Then how do we how do we pull it? How do we pull a redemption then? Meaning Pesach, the 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 halacha tells us that Pesach has to be in the spring, right? So that means that the place of redemption comes in a place of light and warmth and and spring and things are flowering and it's you know everybody's allergies it's acting up. We all know, right? It's like it's gray weather. It's like when the sun is shining, we're happy to do things. But what happens in the winter? We go to Australia. We go to Australia. <laughs> well, they won't let us in right now. Maybe but may, oh. no, Pesach, we don't need it. We don't need it for Pesach, right? So you can go to That's southern. Fun. You can go to a southern hemisphere country, and you you can have and have summer now. But but the bigger question is, you know, sun and light. All those all those terminology in Hasidus talks about revelation of Hashem. So when we're in a place of revelation, yeah, we want to be connected and yeah, we can do this and yeah, we have the power. What happens when it's cold and miserable and winter and I want to get into my bed and pull the covers over my blanket? Can I reach for redemption then? And the parish is telling us, yes. Yes, absolutely. Because these are, these are the Torah portions of the week that are happening right now. So then the, the Torah energy is that of redemption. It, that that's the energy that's going on now. So we, is it easier when it's sunny and we feel Hashem's love and warmth and everything? Yeah, of course it's much easier. But can it be done when it's cold and yuck? Yes. Question, comment. Comment. Okay. Um, when you're in the time of the war with the redemption, you need to collect it and remember it so that you can use it. Exactly. That was Yosef's. That was Yosef's teaching to us. Exactly. So then the question is, what happens if we didn't? Here we are. It's we're, you know, here we are. And now what do we do? And then how do we pull for redemption now? So that's kind of really what I want to do a little bit of focusing on. But first of all, what is it talking about in our Parsha? Our Parsha is going to have, I'm going to really focus on three main events in our Parsha, but I want us to know what the whole Parsha talks about. Um, but before I do that, just one more thing about the whole Chumash. Officially, the book of Shemos covers the time of the Jews in, in Egypt, Okay. That's officially the time frame that covers that covers this book. But if you take a look into our Chumash and you say, within five verses, it goes back to like the children coming, children of Yaakov coming down to coming down to Egypt. And within six verses, they're all dead. Now we know that Yosef 
lives the shortest of all the tribes. Levi lives the longest. You know, a hundred years. Yosef was a king for 80 years. Levi, like, there's a long time that just kind of... So basically what's going to happen is that this book is really, really, really going to talk about two and a half years. Meaning we're going to have, we're going to start with the birth of Moses. We're going to hit, we're going to talk about the slavery. We're going to talk about the birth of Moses. Moses is going to disappear for 80 years. We're not going to see him for 80 years. And then he's going to suddenly come back on the scene. So when we talk about, we say that this book covers the 210 years of the time that the Jews were in, that the Jews were in Egypt. It's not actually hundred percent accurate. Okay. It talks about the places of movement with the, with the Jews. And it's really going to cover in great depth the last year of the Jews being in exile, when Moshe comes back and we start the whole plague situation, da, 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 da. and then we're going to have getting out, we have revelation, and then we're going to have building a home for God. And it's really going to be approximately a two-year two period. So it's going to, on the timeline, cover 210 years, but in real life, it's only going to cover about, about two. Okay? So... So here we are. So the beginning of our parish. Okay, so that was my now, so what do we talk about? So every we talk about the people coming down to Egypt. We have the beginning of the enslavement. We have a new king who comes up over, over Egypt who does not know Yosef. We're going to get back to this, hopefully. And they start saying, what do we do about the Jewish problem? This is not so cool. There are going to be too many. They're going to get over us. And then we, they come up with the first plan of action was to have a, was to have some kind of, everything takes time, right? It doesn't happen that from one one minute to the next, you're our neighbors and now you're our slaves. Like it's it's a gradual process while all that stuff happening. Um, And we'll talk about it in a second, but but basically what's gonna happen is gonna start having this period of enslavement. The next thing they're gonna do is that their pyro is gonna come speak to the Jewish midwives to Shifra and Pua, who Rashi tells us are in fact Yocheved and Miriam. Miriam, who's Moshe's oldest sibling, she's the oldest, then comes Aaron. She's born at the height of the slavery, of the height of the bitterness. Hence her name is Miriam, from the word Mar, from the word bitter. So Miriam, and question? No, okay, sorry. Uh, yeah? I actually okay. So why, why does it, why does it for these different names? We're gonna get to that. First, I have to know what the whole part is talking about before we can get into, into details. Okay, so we have so the first thing he says is you need to kill the, the kill the, the Jewish boys when they're born, kill the babies when they're born, and and they're and it doesn't they don't do it, they fear God, and it doesn't happen. The next thing is he's gonna literally say to take the, the babies and throw them into Nile. Okay, which we're gonna come back to that. I we're gonna come back to that. And then we have Moshe's birth, we have uh, we have his being put into the Nile, which we're going to get back to, please God. And then he, and then Moshe disappears. And the next thing we have is Moshe in the burning bush. And Hashem saying, go, go save the people, blah, blah, blah. The argument, blah, blah, blah. Then they come back. Um, this is really, this is not even the Cliff Notes version of the Parsha. And they, the Parsha is going to end with the first confrontation of Moshe and Aaron to Paro. When they leave, he's like, these people are lazy. They have too much time on their hands. I'm going to make their work harder. And Moshe goes to God and is like, this is why you sent me? To make things worse? Like, what was that all about? Totally paraphrasing Moshe, but like not 100%, right? So that's, uh, so that's the Parsha. So now what I want to do is I want to, what does it say to us? Okay, because that's the Parsha and it's going to continue and we're going to have the continuation of the Exodus. But I want to go back to the beginning of the story. And Sarah asked a very good question, which is from, from Pasuk Aleph. And it says, these are the children of Bnei Yisrael. Habayim is a present tense word, who are coming to Egypt with Yaakov, each person in their family came. And so I was like, why are we using both names? And guess what? All of them ask the same question. Why are you using Yaakov? And why are you using Israel and Yaakov? Pick a name and stick with it, right? So we know that Yisrael is the name that represents us in a really great position. It, was, it represents the Lee Rosh. We are the head for Hashem. We're princes. We got this. We're acing this, right? And for them, Rashi said, but in the present tense, that every, like them coming in, it was as if they had just arrived now. They had been living there for a lot of time, but it was as if it was like a whole new story. 
But some of the other Mepharshim talk about that, that when we're in that place of Yisrael, when we're in that place of we got it all together and we're really connected, we understand that where we were was a really good place. And where we're going to, Habayim, we're, we're there, that's, that's not so good for us. We're coming from Eretz Canaan, from a place of, well, then it was still it was a place of Torah, it was a place of family, and they're coming down to Mitzrayim, which is challenges and it's a country and a culture that does not reflect your value system at all. And if we can hold on to that place of Yisrael, that we got this and we understand that this isn't our place, then we never become complacent where we are. We're constantly growing. We're constantly being innovative in our relationship with Hashem, understanding we were in a really great place. We're now not in a great place, but we're going to keep working on this. We're not going to be stagnant in our relationship. And that's what's going to help us stay in that position. But what happens is uh, when we when we tap into our Yaakov side, then, oh, then we're here. Then we're, we've just accepted our place and our space. And we say, like, in my what do you want me to do? Like, this is, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and this is my reality. But the place of Yisrael, of Ba'im, teaches us we can go, go, we can go more. We don't have to accept the status quo when we tap into that level of our relationship with Hashem. When we come to that place of, I got this, I know I got this, I know I can do this then we're never confined to the reality that we're found, that, that we're, that is around us. But in, it becomes a present, a, we're here, we're coming today. It's a whole new, every single day is a new reality. We're waking up, we're saying, how am I tackling today? How am I dealing with today? As opposed to, oh, we're here. This is what I did yesterday. This is what I did last week. This is what I did the week ago before. This is what I, this is what I always do. This is what I, you know, I'm not saying change just down for change's sake, change's sake. But the place of being alive and being living and being proactive, that's going to be the but-in, that's going to be the but-in part of our personality. Okay? And Rashi says something very interesting. He says, in the Ve'ela Shemot, in the these are the names of the people who came down, right? So Rashi backs up a second. And he says, you know, last week's parsha for us was like a very, very long time ago, but it, it wasn't actually such a long time ago. The Torah last you would scroll back a little bit, and you would see the list of all the people who came down to Egypt. So Rashi says, "Why did he? Why did he? Uh, why does why does the Torah count them? Some even though he counted them in their lifetime with their names, he he calls them again. He he repeats again in their after they passed away to show his love for them. That the Jewish people are compared to the stars." And he takes them and he brings them in and out with their names, and he brings the pasuk from Tzilim to through the point. So, two things I want to say. Two things that I heard from, uh, like with a, a more modern, more modern, more modern commentator, that the place of to show his love for us. When is it super important for Hashem to show his love to us? When we're, down. when we're down, when we're now at the book, that's saying, this is the beginning of exile. This is the beginning of a really, really hard space. Hashem's like, I'm st- I, I, I got you. I love you. You can do this. It's like giving that big hug. It's not that we don't need to be shown love when we're in a good space. It's always nice to get love. But when do we need it? When is it water on a thirsty soul? when we're not in a great place. And here we are, we're at a book that's starting our descent into, into Gullis. It's starting our descent into exile, whether it's here, we're talking about the whole Jewish people, or when we're in a place and we're not in a great place. I love, what? Um, if you hear me, then we'll be fine. Um, that, that the place that Hashem's like, I love you. You can do this. You got this. I'm going to support you in this. I'm with you. You have all the tools that you need to do this. You know, like the real cheerleader thing. That's what we need. We need it when we're going into exile. And the other thing that's super interesting that they were talking about is why does why did it say that we're compared to the stars? And it's so interesting. Last week I was listening to somebody had posted a 
my sister, whatever, posted a, a talk about different psychologists talking about raising children and da, 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 And it's like so tied into that. It was very interesting. So um, he, so they were saying that, um, now what's the point of stars? Why do you have stars? Why do you have stars? Hashem makes a sun and a moon. In creation, Hashem makes a sun and a moon, right? Makes a sun and a moon. And Medrash tells us we know the whole thing, they're equal size, blah, 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 blah. And then, right, you got my blah, 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 because my daughter does blah, 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 together, right? The Torah says, Hashem makes the sun and the moon, and officially, in the Pusik, it says that it looks like they're the same size. And then we, all of a sudden, we had a small light, a small luminary, and a large luminary. The sun is a large luminary, and the moon is a small luminary. And Rashi back ends the story. And he says that the moon went to God and complained and said, you can't have two kings with one crown. So, so God's like, okay, so you get smaller. Great idea, you're right, you get smaller. But then the Medrash says, but the Medrash says, but then Hashem gave the moon the stars, the Faiso, to, to appease him, her, to appease the moon. Because the moon was diminished, the stars were given there to appease the moon. And, and that place of, the sun has a purpose, the moon has a purpose, right? The stars, their only purpose is so that the moon doesn't feel bad. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, um, they're beautiful to look at, especially if you're not in the city, but the, in, in a bit like in the creation, measure says in the creation story, the point of the stars was just so the moon shouldn't feel bad. And, and, and back to this, this, this parenting thing that I was listening to are, you know, and it goes into this showing how we love we don't only love when you're my sun or you're my moon. When you give me light, when it's, you know, in the light, in the sun or the dark, you light up my light. But just because of who you are, and really that's what the stars do. The stars really represent that place of just because. You're there just because I want everybody to be happy and everybody to feel good and everybody to be, you know, to feel validated and valued. So the place of understanding that the stars were there so the moon shouldn't feel so bad. Like it was a good idea, but still the moon ended up with the raw end of the deal. So here, have stars to like, you know, shine with you. Um, and, and, and that place of being there to help somebody else feel good. We know, we know about it today in psychology a lot. When you're feeling terrible, how do you make yourself feel better? Help somebody else, right? They would say, go to a shelter, go to a soup kitchen, go volunteer here, go volunteer there. That's what the stars are. So here we are, we're going into goals. We're going into a place of tight, narrow, not comfortable places. And, and, our, and, our, and our representation, our, our Rashi's calling us stars to understand that in that place, when we do good for others, we will also feel good. And we will also understand that it'll be good for us as well. Okay. Uh, and then we have the names of all the people. Okay. I'm not going to get into this Melchadish situation right now. There's a couple of things that I really want to talk about. Right? I want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, Moshe. And if we go to, where is he? Um, okay, so the end of chapter one, the, the end of chapter one, and I don't know exactly how much in order things are happening over here because at the end of chapter one, uh, verse 22, we have that Paro um, tells, he commands all of his nations to say, every single boy that's born should be thrown into the Nile. And all the girls, you should let them live. Right? So Rashi brings that the stargazers came to Paro and they said that the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born today, but it's not clear to us if he's Egyptian or if he's Jewish. And if we know Moshe's history, we understand why a stargazer would not see that so clearly. He's Jewish, raised in the palace, like so. It's, he has a complicated history, right? So Par's like, wait a second, the deliverer of the Jewish people is being born today. Everybody, all the boys into the Nile. All of them, we're going to kill all. And because they also said, we saw that he's going to die because of water. And we know that Moshe actually ends up being punished because of hitting the rock. So there is water in his, in Moshe's end. And so they say, and, and here's the other thing which Medrash says, they didn't like 
toss the kids into the Nile. That would be blatant murder. But what they did was they put them at the banks of the Nile and let said, you know, whatever happens is meant to happen. Well, you put little kids at the banks of a, of a river that's one step away from from actually putting them in, right? So, so all the, so for one day, the day that Moshe was born, all the boys, both Egyptian and Jewish, were put into the Nile. And Moshe was a preemie. Moshe was a preemie. Moshe was a preemie. We're going to get that in a second. And that's where the next parish, the next parish looks a little bit out of order. One second. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Lost my train of thought. Okay. So we're going to get to that too. So there was, so, um, oh, this is the other one. The Rebbe says in a Sicha that this, that you should, how does it work? How does it translate in English? Sarah, how do they translate in English? Uh, chapter one, verse 22. Just to read that passage. Power commands the people. Okay, so you keep alive. So we see that the keep alive, the Rebbe says, is an active, is an active uh, verb. It's not just let them live, it's keep them alive. And the Rebbe says that it's not enough. The boys we're going to kill by murder, but the girls are going to kill by taking their souls. We're going to keep them alive. We're going to integrate them into society. We're going to, you know, take them into our own. So it's not that they will be physically alive, but spiritually they will be lost. And that's how power plans to like deal with the whole Jewish situation. Now, the next parrot opens up, that a man from the house of Lady a woman from the house, tells us, and Rashi brings it that this is Amram who remarries his wife, Yocheved. Okay? The Medrash tells us that they do it on the advice of Miriam, which is going to have uh, spoilers for, for what the, the next part of the story, right? Where Miriam... Once Paro says we're gonna kill all the boys, so so Amram and Yochanan separate, and everybody separates. And Miriam says, "You're worse than you're worse than than Paro because you're also killing the girls." And she says, and and the major says she was a prophetess. She's five or six years old at this time, and she says the the savior of the Jewish people is supposed to be born from you. You guys just well, I'm in, in more or more common terminology, you guys are supposed to have this child who's going to save the Jewish people. And I think it's such an amazing thing that her parents didn't say, she just wants another baby in the house, she's a five-year-old, she needs a new toy. They understood that their daughter was giving them a prophecy and they reacted to that prophecy and they very publicly came back together. If you do the math, Miriam says to Amram and Yochavit, okay, she says to her parents, Meanwhile, Miriam has been born and Aaron's been born, right? And they, she says, by you separating, you're supposed to have the savior. What are you going to do? And so what's going to happen, as Noah pointed out, they do get back together. Moshe is actually born. He's a preemie. He's born at six months. Um, and, and when, it, and when we're going we're to come to Moshe and Nile for a second, because very, I think it's such an important story. Um, her father says to her, what's with your prophecy? Like, it didn't happen. This isn't, he isn't the savior. And she, you know, we know that Miriam goes to stand by the river and watch what's happening. Why? Because she knows he's the savior. She knows he's going to get saved. She just doesn't know how it's going to happen. She just doesn't know how the pieces are going to come together. So she's there ready to act because she knows the story isn't over by putting him into the basket. Like, that's just not happening. She knows that he's going to be saved, and she's very, very proactive. Where her father is, is, I don't know if he's cynical or if he's in pain or what the story is. When they actually have to go put Moshe into the basket, he's like, okay, my daughter, what happened to your prophecy? So she's like, it'll work. She's, she doesn't say anything, but she acts. She steps up to the plate, and she's like, this isn't over. I know this is not over, and she's going to go and figure out what happens. Um, when he's born, and as Noah said, he's born at six months. They, that's what the puzzle says, they're able, they're able to hold him for three months. Um, they hide him for three months. Uh, and it says that he, you see that he's good. And his parents actually call the name that he's given by his parents. Anybody know? What's Moshe's name from birth? 
That's one of his names. That's not the name his parents gave him. Okay. Not a Vigdor. Tuvia. He's called Tuvia. His parents called him Tuvia. Okay. So they're able to ha- hold him for three months. And, um, and, they, and then they go. Now, you have to follow the Pesukim. You're not going to see what I'm saying over here. Okay. So then they, in verse three, they can't hold him anymore. Um, and uh, uh, let me start. I want to read verse three, four, five. Go. Okay. Yeah. Hello, yeah. In, in English, in English. Uh, however, she could not hide him any longer, so she took for him a papyrus basket, plastered it with clay, and placed the child in it and put it among the reeds by the river bank. Okay, that's going to be a pausing for a second. Where did she put the basket? <coughs> by the reeds of the river bank. And then what happens? The sister stood from a distance to find out what would happen. Right, again, she knows, she knows it's going to be good. She just doesn't know how. Go, yeah. Haru's daughter went down to bathe in the river with her maids who were walking by the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to fetch it. Okay. Keep going. She opened it, saw the child, and found that the boy was crying. She had pity on him and said, He is from the children of the Hebrews. His sister said to Haru's daughter, Should I go and call for you a nursing woman from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse the child for you? Haru's daughter said to her, Go. The young child went and called the boy's mother. Haru's daughter said to her, Take this child, nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. The woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew up, and then she brought him to Haru's daughter, and he was as a son for her. She named him Moshe, saying, For I drew him from the water. Okay, this is, this is our first introduction to Moshe. I want to say a couple of very, very, very important things. Um, first of all, we have that the, the, his sister, if, I'm going to give you a couple of points on the story, a little bit out of order. Um, the first thing is that his, his sister steps up to the plate and says that, do you, want, do you want me to get a nursemaid for you? And Rashi says, brings from the Medrash, that Paro's daughter you know, tried to get an Egyptian woman to an Egyptian nursemaid to nurse Moshe and he wouldn't do it. And it says, Rashi says, because in the future, he was going to speak to God and it was not appropriate for him to nurse from an Egyptian woman. I once heard from Rabbi Riskin and it it stuck in my head like, he said, could you imagine if we treated our children as if they were capable of growing up and, and talking to God? If they were capable of growing up and being that special, how would we treat them? How would we talk to our children if we understood that they could grow up and speak to God? Uh, and it, it, it was like such a, <gasps> when I heard it, and like every year when I get to this prospect, like I think about it again, like how do we interact with our children? And when I say children, I want to say also for ourselves, those of us who don't physically have children at this point, there are the places within us that are, we're still childlike. There are certain things we're nice and mature. And we've like got it all together. And even those of us who do have children, there's still places that we are our own child, you know? And, and how do we talk to our, how do we talk to the child part of us with kindness and with grace and with understanding that we are capable of doing so, so, so much? Because when we use words of encouragement, we use positive words and we use words, of, you know, all those world words that build, it helps. There's no, there's no denying. It helps. It makes, it just helps everything. So that was one thing I wanted to say. The second thing that I wanted to say is um, loosely based on something from the, from, from Rabbi Nachman, because Rabbi Nachman, somebody wrote a safer based on Rabbi Nachman's uh, Torahs. And um, so it's not exactly by kind of paraphrasing the work. So we talk, so Rashi says that, you know, we start read that she said she heard Paro's daughter hears motion, cry, here's a child crying. She sends her mates over to get him. Rashi says, Rashi brings two different interpretations. What did, how did she get this child? She got this child, either she sent her maid servant or Amak goes to be her arm. You know, biblical measurements, you always have an ama. She stretched out her arm to get the child. And Rashi says that her arm stretched out many lengths. Um, and, and so Rabbi Nachman says, I'm not getting into it for hand. 
I don't know what actually happened. But there are times in our lives that we see something and we want to help and we react instinctively. When she saw the basket in the river, she couldn't reach it. She couldn't reach it, but she wanted to. And the, the wanting to made her capable of something that had she thought the process through and planned it and organized it, it could never have happened. You know, we always read random stories in the, in the news of like somebody whose child was pinned under the car and they like lifted the car and then, just, and then they couldn't do it afterwards. Like this, this, whether it's adrenaline or where this is, this cough of, there are times we want to do something and there is a place that like, even that place of wanting, even if we, you know, like that, that instinctive reaction, like you see, you, there's value for that. Now, I don't say that when we try to reach something that's out of our grasp, we do this, our hands are gonna stretch out and we're gonna be able to miraculously catch it and save it. But I think spiritually, that, that being helpful, there's something spiritual about our instinctive reaction. Yes, there's a place for thinking out a plan and doing things regularly and normally and all that stuff. It's all very, very, very important. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. But I'm saying the place of instinctively wanting to help and trying to make it better, there's a lot, a lot of value in that. That was the second thing that I want to share. The third thing that I want to share about this particular story is a very interesting, it's a very interesting thing. It's from the Medrash. Um, Medrash tells us, I'm going to back up a little second. We know that to save a person's life, you're allowed to break any mitzvah except not one of Three things that you are never, ever, ever allowed to do. Bad idols, right? Serve idols, right? Murder, adultery, idolatry. Not idolatry. What did you say? Huh? Adultery. Adultery, idolatry, and murder are the three things that you are never ever. Now we know that the Nile in Egypt was a god. They worshiped the Nile. So, can Yocheved put Moshe into the Avodazara, into the, into the Nile to save his life? No. No, even to save your life, you're not allowed to break these three things. And we notice, where does Yocheved put the basket? In the reeds on the side of the river. She puts it in the reeds. And then what does the Torah tell us? That the daughter of power comes down to bathe in the Nile. Now, let's, I, I don't know how common that was or wasn't, right? If the Nile is their God, I don't know how common it was for people actually not to, to bathe in the Nile. Yeah, maybe for her, but the measure says a very interesting thing. That there is a process called bitol avaydazara, to nullify something as an avaydazara. And how does it work to nullify something as an avaydazara? Somebody who believes in that comes and says, that's not true. Now, for somebody who doesn't believe in it to come and say that's not true, that's not helpful. But for somebody who actually believes in the value of this avaydazara, to come and say, no, it's not true. That makes that no longer a Jewish? Jewish thing. Jewish, Jewish thing. A Jewish thing. So the Medrash tells us that the daughter of Paro came to table in the mikvah. She came to go to the mikvah in the Nile to say, this is not real. And after that story, then we have Moshe's basket is then in the, in the middle of the Nile. Then she sees the basket in the middle of the Nile. Because once the Nile has been from an Egyptian who believes in the Abedazara of the, of the Nile, an Egyptian has come and said, it's not real, then it's not Abedazara in the sense that you can now use it. Emotions like can be saved through the Nile. Batya, who was the daughter of Cairo, comes to, to go to the mikvah in the, in the, in the Nile. Measure says, and and therefore she's essentially saying, "You're not so real. You're not a big awful god. 
you're just a body of water and I am coming to table in this, in this, she did, she didn't convert it, the, the whole conversation of the Medjish what actually happened, but she definitely, the Medjish said that she did something called Bittal Benzar, that by going into the water and toiling in that water, and going into that water, she then says, you're not so powerful, you're just water, you're not a god, and once the Nile is not a god anymore, then Moshe can be saved through the Nile, and then we're going to find that his then they see the basket in the water. Yochanan puts it at the reeds on the side because she can't put them into the Abayi Zara. She's not allowed to use Abayi Zara to save his life. That's the three cardinal ones. You know, never, never, never. So she puts it on the side. Once it's no longer a thing, then he can he can be saved. Yes. Yes. Right, 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 right. How many times? This is my next point. Thank you for moving it up. How many times do we say, I got the situation covered? I have all the details planned out. I know how this is going to happen. I know how this is going to work. This is Pyro. Pyro says, no boys. We need to get rid of all the boys. Okay, we're going to put them all into the river. And then my problem is going to be solved. And God's like, really? Huh. Let's see how that, that works out. We're not going to, we're going to have all the boys thrown into the river so the savior of the Jewish people doesn't get saved. Guess what? He was in the river. Who took him out? Your daughter. Where was he raised? In your house. And what was he called every single day in the palace? Drawn from the water. He was called every single day. He was called Moshe because he was drawn from the water. And, you, and he, and God's like, you think you got this one figured out? You think you got all the pieces together? There's a bigger plan. There's a bigger thing going on over here. How, what a, a magnificent lesson for us. We got to do our part. Absolutely. We can't sit back and say, God, pay my rent. God, get me a job. God, find me my soulmate. Like, that's just not how it works. But the second we think we are totally in control and we have all the pieces and we know exactly how it's going to work and we know exactly how it's going to go down, God's like, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let's see how that works out for you. Not in a malicious kind of way, but in the place of understanding that Hashem is in charge of the world and Hashem has a plan. And we have to do our part. We have to do our part 100%. We have to do our part. You know, we, now we're like, we're in the middle of this charity thing. And I'm like, yay, it's going so well, it's going so well. Yeah. And I keep saying like, this into another piece. There's a bunch of charities going on. Like with Hashem's help and our hard work, it'll come together. Like that's a winning combination. We need to understand that both of those pieces need to happen together. We need to have, we need to have Hashem understanding Hashem's going to, Hashem's pulling the strings. Hashem has us all figured out. We have to do our part. But then when we work together, when those two pieces go together, then it's fixed. Then it's perfect. And P.S. What does Moshe get in his time in the palace? Royalty. I'm royal. He, he gets imbued with royal behavior. And one of his arguments later on, he's going to come to the we're going to talk about the burning bush. But when it comes to the burning bush, when it comes to the burning bush, and he said, and, and then Hashem, he ends up going back. And he, one of his arguments is like, why are you sending me? Why are you sending me? Moshe, uh, Miriam and Aaron were there. They suffered with the people. Why are you sending me? I'm like, I'm almost, I'm an outsider. And one of the things that, you know, first of all, one of the, they talk about that, many reasons why it has to be Moshe. One of the things that they talk about the more, more modern commentaries was that one of the things he got was that stance of freedom, that stance of being royal, of understanding that I can do this. If you say, if a slave has to go speak to Pharaoh, how do you come to the door? You know, if I lived in this house, I know all the secret passageways. I know the front door. I know the side door. I know where we keep all, you know, where we play hide and seek. I know this place. I know how to talk in the house. Boom. Here I am. Come and talk. Come and be. How do we speak royal? How do we feel royal? All of us actually have that. All of us are children of, of Hashem. We are all royalty. But Moshe is going to be the one who's going to really imbue it into us 
How do we behave? How do we walk? How do we talk? How do we react to the world? How do we do anything? We're royal. There's a way to do things. We're not these little nebuchs who we're going to take whatever crumbs we're given. No. We are children of Hashem. We are princes. We are princesses. We, we have not just dignity. We have spine and, and poise. And, and we have things that are belief beneath our dignity. You know, when we were growing up, one of the things they used to tell us, my parents used to tell us, which can only appreciate as an adult, I'll be quite honest. Um, when we wanted to do something, they would, I'll be honest, they would often tell us, it's not befitting you. It's not, not, you know, like whatever, but like, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing, it's not like halacha says you can't, but the question is, sipas or sipasnish? Is it appropriate for you or is it not appropriate for you? And one of the things that Moshe gives us is that place of understanding as royalty, how do we do anything? How do we talk? How do, in, in, in the subtleties, the, our choice of language, our choice of everything, our choice of mannerisms, now, it doesn't mean we should all start walking around with crowns on our head. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a different level. I don't know if we're going there. Um, but, but to understand that inner spine of royalty, of we are the children of Hashem, and therefore we have more than just value. We have such incredible, incredible value, incredible purpose. Um, that's one of the things that we're going to get from Moshe. I'm going to say one more thing about this, and then we're going to, we did not finish the Parsha, shockingly enough. Um, but I want to go to the burning bush for two minutes because we have still two, we still have two more minutes. Go to chapter three, our fourth Aliyah. Moshe is a shepherd. He's taking care of the, the sheep. It's a long, convoluted, a long, a long story, which the Medrash has a lot. If you want to fill in the background story, find the Medrash says and read it. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Where was Moshe? He, where did he disappear to? What was he doing? In all these years from when he disappeared from Egypt, it's a long story. Um, uh, he had different encounters. We're, we're, we're glossing over a lot. Just be aware that we're glossing over a lot. So Moshe goes, he takes the sheep to the, to the desert, and, he's, uh, and he's, he's shepherding the sheep there. He's shepherding the sheep there. Okay? And in verse 2, it says, He sees this. Rivka, want to read for us? 2 and 3 and 4. The angels of the Lord appeared to him in a flaming fire from within a thorn bush. He looked and suddenly the thorn bush was ablaze with fire, but the thorn bush did not consume. Moshe said, Let me go aside and see this great sight. Why does the thorn bush not burn? The Lord saw that he went aside to see and got called after him from within the thorn bush and said, Moshe, Moshe, he said, Here I am. Okay, we're going we're gonna to do one more verse. Do one more verse. He said, do not come closer to this point. Remove your shoes from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Okay. So a couple of things. Moshe's going in the desert. And the way the puzzle describes it is that there is something happening on the side. It's a side vision thing for him. And he says, I will stop what I'm doing. Asurana, I will turn from the direction that I'm going. And I will see this. Right, a surina, I will turn and I will see. That means he's going like this in whatever direction, right? And out of the corner of his eyes, he notices something weird that's really weird. And he stops and he says, I will stop and I will turn and I will look at this. What is this that I'm looking at? And when Hashem sees that he cared enough to stop, to turn and to interact, then Hashem comes to Moshe and says, Then we're going to start having this whole conversation about going to save the Jewish people. In our lives, there are so many things that we're, we're inundated with information and with stuff and simulation. And the question is, when we see something, and it's not in our direct front vision, how do we react to it? How do we, do we say, not my business, not my business, not my business, keep going? Or do we say, oh, I, I, need, I need to check this out. I need to pay attention to what's going on. I need, to, I need to turn. Moshe and, and Hasidus talks about the idea. He wasn't only talking about a physical turn from here to there, but there was a spiritual. He's on this 
this spiritual journey. And he's like, I'm going to stop my growth and I'm going to go take a look and see what's happening over here. And that act of turning and caring, God's like, that's my man. Got him. This is who I want. Somebody who's going to not, not stop, not just keep going and say, I didn't see anything, I didn't see anything, but the person who's going to care enough to stop and turn and react, Hashem's like, that's the savior. That's the savior. And the other thing, which I think is so, 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 so important, first instruction that he's given by Hashem is to take off his shoes, that the, the place that he's coming to is holy ground and do not come with shoes. Um, and, and one of the things we know as we're taught as people, as potential leaders, as people with, with influence, when we come to a place of fire, of pain, of human suffering, the, the, the shoe is made to protect us from the element, right? When you're doing the brachas with, with, uh, with Gila, there's a bracha that we make for wearing shoes. There is, it, it is there to protect us from the elements, but it also is an emotional space. We're like, we've got our armor on, we're okay. We could see this and not get so affected. Don't get so personally involved. The first thing Hashem says is, take off your shoes. You are coming into a place of pain. You're coming into a place of suffering. It is holy ground. It is not just, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to put salt on their wounds. It is holy ground. When you come to a place of pain, it is holy ground. Take off your armor. Don't protect yourself so much. Be able to be there fully for the people who need your help. And then we can start the conversation. Once you once you take your shoes off, then we can start the conversation. Moshe and Hashem are going to have this conversation for many, many days and many, many arguments back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This is not going to be an easy conversation. But one of the things Hashem says, you want to be a real leader? You have to really feel what's going on. You can't just stay in your ivory tower and be separated from whatever's going on and say, oh, I have all, all these great, wonderful ideas. You really have to uh, get a little bit involved. I want to give us all a bracha. We are literally opening up a new book this week. We are literally starting a new, not just a new page. It's not just a new parsha. It's a new book. It's a new opportunity. One of the things that we know about the winter months when everything is yucky and cold and everything is that externally, it looks like things aren't happening, but internally the ground is, the roots are getting deeper and the things are underneath their stuff happening. And come the spring, everything's going to start sprouting again. So I want to give us a bracha that as we work through this place of Gula, we understand that it doesn't have to come out in this kind of behavior. It has to come out in deep roots. It has to come in real decisions, in planting ourselves firmly where we want to be and in the decisions that we want to be, the person that we want to flower and sprout in the right time, and to be able to solidly put those roots down, to water them, to take care of them, keep them warm and cold, and in time, everything will sprout and be beautiful. Have an awesome rest of the day. Thank you.